This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. We're dropping an extra episode a few days early in this feed, and that's because this is what is known as the high-level week at the United Nations General Assembly. Every September, world leaders descend on New York to meet at the UN. This year, while President Joe Biden will lead the US delegation, the leaders of China, France, India, and Russia have chosen to give the summit a pass. Russia will be represented by its foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. It has been 19 months since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and since then, the UN has been in a bind. How does it deal with a major violation of the UN Charter to maintain international peace, that is, when a member of its Security Council refuses to even admit it has invaded another country? That country, Russia, has veto power as a permanent member of the Security Council, and it means the UN itself is more paralyzed than it's ever been. The situation makes America's role particularly difficult. If it wants to work through the UN, there's only so much it can do. So, what are the White House's priorities this week as it gears up for the main few days of action at the UN? Linda Thomas-Greenfield is the Biden administration's ambassador to the United Nations. We spoke about her aims for this week. I also put to her some strong criticism from Gordon Brown, a former British prime minister, who argues in FP's latest print issue that Washington has been prioritizing bilateral and regional deals instead of focusing on the UN. In other words, America is abandoning the very institution it helped create. Thomas Greenfield, of course, disagrees. She might go with what another former British Prime Minister once said, and that was Winston Churchill, who called the United Nations the only hope of the world. As always, subscribe to FP to watch these discussions live on video and to ask questions. Don't forget to use the code FPLIVE for a discount when you sign up. Let's dive in. Ambassador, welcome back to FP Live. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here with you. It's our pleasure. So let's start with this. What is your number one priority in the next week with the high-level meetings at the UN General Assembly? That's a very loaded question, Robbie. My number one priority is to have a successful week during the uh, high-level week. But uh, just to get down into specifics, we are looking during this week to really reaffirm our partnerships to reaffirm those partnerships with our allies and our friends, but also with those that we may disagree with. Because even with those we disagree with, we have some priorities at, that we can work on uh, together. Secondly, we will be focused on the UN Charter. A permanent member of the Security Council attacked a neighbor. Uh, that goes against everything that the Charter stands for. The values of sovereignty, the values of integrity of borders, and we will be 
talking about and working with reaffirming our commitments to the charter. And then third, as you know, we have been engaging with countries around the world on the issues of UN reform and how to make the UN fit for purpose for this generation and how to make the UN much more inclusive. And so I do agree that the Churchill statement is still relevant uh, today, and we will continue to reaffirm that commitment for this organization and to make it more effective and, and more transparent and more inclusive in the future. So we'll come to UN reform in a bit, Ambassador. Um, just a few more specific questions. So there's going to be quite a bit of attention on the sustainable development goals this year. It's sort of the halfway point between when they were first framed and 2030, when they need to be realized. There are 17 goals. Um, they include no poverty, zero hunger, affordable energy, many more. Ambassador, progress on all of these big ticket items feels very slow globally. What could move the needle? We are uh, going to reaffirm our commitment to the SDGs. They have been slow. We've only reached about 12% of the goals being on track. And we're going to really have to work with uh, the other member states to fast track this. And that's what this SDG summit is about. It's about pushing and encouraging and nudging countries forward. A lot of the lack of achievement has to do with things that are outside the control of many countries. The uh, impact of the COVID pandemic really uh, slowed uh, progress down. Climate change has slowed progress down. Uh, we've seen uh, economic uh, uh, conditions and countries slow that down. So we're here to recommit to that. We're here to work with other countries to see what they need to reaffirm their commitments so that we can all achieve these goals. There was a big CFR report out recently in which it said that the U.S. is rare among rich countries to not incorporate the SDGs in policies guiding its international investments. Why do you think that is? And, and I guess also, doesn't that make the U.S. lose some of its moral authority in these areas? Look, Robbie, we are committed to these goals. We have uh, shown our commitment. We've shown our commitment in our actions. Many states are working diligently to ensure that those commitments are put into their documents. And we're working very, very aggressively here in New York to ensure that. So there is no doubt, there's no question about the U.S. commitment to the SDGs. I want to take a tour of the world and I want to begin with um, Sudan. You just got back from the Chad-Sudan border. You said it was one of the saddest days in your life to see what you saw there. Can you describe some of that? There's a war underway in Sudan. What's going on? You know, I saw uh, lines of donkey carts with whole families waiting to come into uh, Sudan, uh, clearly traumatized young kids who were just sitting quietly. I talked to young women who were also traumatized, many of them victims of uh, unspeakable uh, violence and rape. Uh, as I keep quoting, because I can't get it out of my head, one young woman saying to me she had lost her uh, ambition. A hospital uh, where there was just complete silence. 
with children who were clearly malnourished, clearly suffering, parents distressed to be there with, uh, with their children. The positive side, I have to say, I was impressed with the humanitarian uh, workers who were working around the clock to save lives and to provide support uh, for these people. And I did announce an additional $163 million for the humanitarian response from the U.S. government. We continue to be the largest donor, but it is not enough. And my goal was to spur other donors to contribute to this really uh, necessary effort. How does the world get together to solve uh, some of the issues we're seeing in Sudan to stop uh, the war that's underway there? And I say this, you know, because a lot of these kind of conflicts, uh, you know, and this issue in particular has been going on for a while. Does the international community bear some responsibility for getting us here? Now, who's responsible for getting us here are those people who are uh, in the middle of, of starting this war and continuing this violence against, uh, against our own people. But in the international community and particularly in the Security Council, we do have a responsibility for peace and security around the world. And we have to really uh, up our game uh, there. And that's why I traveled to uh, Chad so that I could highlight this and encourage others to engage on this issue more uh, aggressively. We hosted the first open meeting on the situation in Chad during our presidency of the Security Council. There are members of the council who resist having open meetings on these critical situations. And I think it's important that uh, we not only expose what is happening in these situations, we condemn them and we push for solutions. You know, Ambassador, we often take subscriber questions here. I think they're very important. So we get other voices at the table. Um, one of our subscribers, Matthias Voss, asks that regional crises in Africa and UN peacekeeping in general they seem to play no significant role during the high-level week at the UNGA. Do you not see the need for discussion about the future of peacekeeping, for example, uh, at a time like this? Uh, that's an issue that we discuss every single uh, day here. Uh, peacekeeping is a, a huge part of what the UN does. There will be a huge peacekeeping summit in Ghana in December, and uh, we have not ignored that. It is on the agenda this week as well. There are uh, heads of peacekeeping missions who are in town. We're meeting with them. We're engaging with them, and we will continue to uh, to do that, Matthias. This is not something that's put uh, on the side during high-level week, but it's also something that we can't just discuss during high-level week. We have to have this on our agenda every day. Sudan's military leaders have threatened to end uh, a UN political mission there. Um, they've also expressed they're open to Russia building a military base in the Red Sea. Can you tell us about that? Uh, that uh, threat uh, was uh, totally unacceptable and uh, we have to condemn them for that threat. The UN mission there provides support to the Sudanese people. 
And that mission is important to ensuring that we continue to be there for the people of, of Sudan. So I uh, urge them, I demand that they withdraw that threat, that they look for a way to work with the UN to open up humanitarian quarters so that humanitarian assistance can get through, that they give visas to humanitarian workers. These kinds of threats, I think, just uh, is discouraging to the Sudanese people. And I think it pushes more people to look to escape uh, into neighboring countries. Ambassador, let's move to Iran. Uh, the 16th of September marks a year since uh, Massa Amini was killed in police custody after being detained by the morality police there. Um, give us a, a sense of you know, what the United States is doing um, with Iran, how the sanctions policies are working out so far. Well, as you know, as soon as this happened, we engage with the brave and courageous Iranian women who were protesting this on the streets. Uh, they wanted us to to really amplify what was happening in Iran, in uh, New York, at the Security Council, in the UN. We pushed for Iran to be kicked off the Commission on the Status of Women, and we succeeded in doing that. And we held a number of very high-profile Security Council discussions on this issue. And as you know, today, the US announced new sanctions on Iran. We have not forgotten uh, what happened to her and the uh, difficulties that Iranian women and the public are facing in Iran. And these sanctions are a notification that we have not forgotten and that we will continue uh, to look for opportunities to hold those accountable who are abusing and uh, committing human rights violations in Iran. Let's turn to Ukraine and Russia um, and when we began this interview, you said that the defending the UN Charter would be one of your priorities in the coming week. Talk to us a little bit about that, because it's been a year and a half since Russia invaded Ukraine. The UN Charter in that sense seems like a shambles, and uh, the UN hasn't really been able to get the entire world to come together to condemn Russia. The war is still continuing. What is your sense of, on this issue specifically, what the UN can achieve in the coming week? You know, uh, Robbie, the world has condemned Russia. We got over 140 votes in the General Assembly to condemn Russia's actions in Ukraine. Russia got but, but respectfully, respectfully, Ambassador, 140 plus tells me that 50 plus did not. No, it tells you that six only supported Russia. Uh, countries make decisions about abstentions and uh, absences for various reasons. Some countries are absent because they didn't pay their dues. Uh, some countries uh, made decisions to abstain for other reasons, including being threatened by Russia. But 140 plus countries did condemn and six countries only voted with Russia. And I think that is a strong condemnation and that con condemnation continues. Russia is isolated in, in New York. They know they're isolated. Their backs are up against the wall and they are fighting like uh, 
as I've said several times in the Security Council, like a bully on, on the playground holding hostage. Many of the important priorities we have, such as vetoing the resolution, supporting uh, keeping the border mandate open in Syria. But they are isolated and they have been condemned and we will continue to uh, look for more efforts to hold them accountable. I'll just point out that at the BRICS summit recently in South Africa, um, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was there. He was uh, welcomed by uh, Prime Minister Modi in India at the G20 and so on and so forth. Um, Putin also uh, recently met North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Uh, and just moving there, I'm curious, what tools uh, do you think the United States has or the UN has to stop North Korean weapons from reaching Russia? But uh, we've been very, very clear that any violations of uh, Security Council resolutions as it relates to providing uh, weapons uh, to a proliferator will be uh, held accountable. And so it is unfortunate that Russia, a permanent member of the Security Council, would be uh, engaged particularly uh, with purchasing weapons from the DPRK, but it also shows that they are desperate. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, in addition to a range of other benefits, including our magazine, of course. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to the war in Ukraine, what is your sense of what a resolution might look like? I think and a growing number of analysts are beginning to examine you know, how this war could end with elections coming up in the United States uh, next year. There's also a sense that support for Ukraine may fade in the US, which may precipitate or at least add some pressure on Kyiv. What is your administration's stance and how do you see that playing out at the UN next week? Uh, there's nothing we want more than peace in Ukraine. And that can be achieved simply by Russia pulling its troops out of Ukraine and stopping this unprovoked war. So we have supported all efforts to find a path forward for peace, as long as it's a just peace, as long as it includes Ukraine in the discussions about peace. Uh, I've gotten a lot of questions concerning uh, the possibility that the US support for Ukraine is not sustainable. 
let me just say that support is bipartisan. I have met with uh, members of Congress, both here in New York from both sides, and they all have consistently said to me that they support Ukraine and that we must continue to support Ukraine because Ukraine is on the front lines of fighting for democracy. And American troops are not on, on the ground there, but Ukrainians are fighting and we have to continue that support because if Ukraine loses uh, this war uh, and Russia gets away with what they're doing in Ukraine, it's a signal to others in the world that uh, they can do exactly the same thing. I'll just point out there are several Republican presidential candidates uh, who have been quite openly questioning uh, U.S. support for Ukraine. Uh, and that's why a number of Ukrainian uh, politicians themselves have expressed fear um, that the U.S. may not stay the course. And there are a number uh, who have expressed support for Ukraine and the president has been clear that we will stay with Ukraine as long as they need us. And that's the position that we have, and we will continue to support them as long as this war continues. Taiwan's foreign minister to move to another part of the world, uh, Joseph Wu, called on the UN to accept it as a member in order to ensure peace in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, do you have a take on that? Uh, I don't. I think we should continue to look for paths forward uh, to find a, a solution. Our policy uh, on, uh, on Taiwan has not uh, changed, and we are uh, supportive uh, of the principles of a one-China uh, uh, policy, but we are not, uh, we're, this is not an issue that we will engage on here. Mm. So I began this interview, Ambassador, by mentioning an essay by Gordon Brown, the former prime minister of the UK. It's a brilliant long read. And he makes the case that America is ignoring the UN. He's saying that Washington focuses much more these days on bilateral and regional agreements, and that in doing so, America is doing the world a disservice. Obviously, I know you're going to disagree with the very premise of this piece, uh, but let's engage with it a little bit. Is it your sense when you look at the Biden administration's focus on industrial policy, on a foreign policy for the middle class, on uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan calling the G7 the steering committee of the free world? When you hear all of that and you're at the UN mission, what is your sense? Is it your sense that the U.S., is just focused less on the United Nations? I don't agree. Me and my team, we're working around the clock with the administration to engage in this multilateral forum. Uh, the president is going to be here next week. He will be highlighting for the world our commitment to the United Nations. We're going to have other cabinet members here as well. And uh, as I said, I'm here. I work around the clock. And uh, I think we have shown over the course of the past two and a half years, uh, the U.S. commitment to ensuring that this multilateral forum continues. We agree it needs some reform. It needs to be more inclusive. But I, as I constantly uh, quote former secretary, uh, the late Madeleine Albright, if we didn't have the U.N., we'd create it today. And uh, we have it. And it's important. And it is making a difference. I guess part of the argument is that the UN does exist, but the US itself is 
pouring more energy into bilateralism, into regional diplomacy than into truly focusing on reforming the UN or trying to rejuvenate the World Bank or the IMF. At least that is the criticism. You know, but let we're me doing ask both. We're doing both. Uh, bilateral relations are important. That's why we engage with partners. So part of what we're doing here in New York next week is really focusing on those partnerships. And those partnerships are bilateral, they're regional, they are entities and, and relationships that we engage with on a regular basis every single day. But this institution is part of that. Let me ask you the inverse of that question then. Is the rest of the world beginning to ignore the United Nations? The leaders, top leaders from China, India, Russia, of course, are not coming. Does that weaken the strength and validity of discussions next week? We're going to have about 150 heads of state. I heard that on the news, so don't quote me on that figure. But about 150 heads of state here uh, in New York next week. President Biden is going to be here in New York next week. And we will be meeting uh, with various countries, engaging on a number of issues that are important to the world. The absence of other heads of state, you have to engage with, uh, with them on why they're not here, but their countries, uh, most of them will be represented at uh, senior levels. Let's just talk briefly about UN reform. This comes up every year around about this time. It seems intractable, partly because of veto power. What is your sense of what is possible uh, along the lines of uh, reforming the Security Council or getting stuff done to work around the fact that Russia has veto power? You know, it's not intractable. We we are we have made some progress over the past year since the president announced during his general assembly speech that we supported reform of the Security Council, including making it more inclusive to uh, include countries from Africa and Latin America and uh, other parts of, of the world. And so we've been working over the course of the past year to engage with countries, with regions on how we can make that happen, how we can uh, find a path forward that will allow us to achieve that goal. And what I found is that Countries do want to do that. The veto power Russia has wielded, we were able actually to pass one reform last year that requires Russia to come before the General Assembly and explain why they vetoed. That was never done in the past before. And they have been called uh, to the General Assembly on numerous occasions over the past year to explain their veto. And believe me, that's not a comfortable place sitting in that hot seat trying to explain actions that countries uh, disagree with. Another veto power holder, China. Um, uh, we've actually gotten a fair bit of this interview without discussing them at length. Um, but much of the world is very worried about US-China relations. Uh, they have generally trended downwards over the last five or six years. Uh, how does that look to you from the United Nations? What do you think might emerge in the coming week that might increase ties between diplomats on both sides? You know, we we have those diplomatic uh, conversations and ties all the time. I sit on the Security Council with the uh, Chinese permanent representative. And uh, in that fora, 
and as well as outside that fora, we engage on a regular basis on multilateral issues, not issues that we all necessarily agree on, but we're able to have discussions on the key uh, multilateral issues that we have uh, to engage on here. And as you know, there've been a number of direct bilateral engagements with the Chinese recently, the Secretary of State's visit, the uh, Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Treasury uh, was there, and we're continuing to have those engagements. We know that diplomacy is important with uh, countries that you uh, don't necessarily agree with everything on, but you need to have that kind of open communication, and those channels of communication are open. Will the United States be extending an invite to Xi Jinping to attend the APEC meetings uh, later this year? I can't give you a, a, a headline on that one. Uh, we are working on that now. Ambassador, I know you have to go, so I'm going to say thank you very much. Good. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. And that was Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the Biden administration's ambassador to the United Nations. Remember, you can take a look at who we have coming up on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. This week, we're going to drop another episode tomorrow, and that is a discussion with Samantha Power, the administrator of USAID. Power is also a former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and sits on Biden's National Security Council. We're going to talk about her big goals for the week. You do not want to miss this. That is it for now. I'm Ravi Agrawal. I'll see you in a bit. political analyst and columnist, Danielle Moody. And I'm writer with Jihad Ali, and we've come together to lead you away from the lies and out of the gaslight. This, this is, is Democracy-ish. Democracy Absolutely very excited to speak with the host of The Mary Trump Show, Mary Trump. This is the Republican Party. There's There aren't different wings of it anymore. The entirety of the Republican Party is a white supremacist, fascist party. Brian Tyler Cohen. People are focused on the attacks on democracy. It, they understand that this extremism is leading to further attacks and further erosions of rights. We discuss the serious issues and threats that face our nation. Join us on Democracy-ish everywhere you get your podcasts.